0: Welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Celebrity Speakers New Zealand, Aotearoa's foremost professional speakers and entertainment agency for over 30 years. Now, today my guest is Rebecca Campbell and she is one of Celebrity Speakers' top keynote speakers. So if you are interested in having her at your next event, head to CelebritySpeakers.co.nz and inquire with the friendly team. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with entrepreneur and author, Rebecca Campbell. Rebecca Campbell, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat.
0: Yeah, I know life's busy and we're all over the show at the moment, but um, you know I really, really, really appreciate your time. And um, you know we were just sort of talking before about sort said, what do, you, what do you want to talk about, but I really just want to talk about you, you know, because um, <laughs> you know in, in the work that I've done, sort of uh, looking at you and and, and researching you, it's, it's certainly very apparent that you've had a um, you know a really interesting and diverse sort of career and life, and so um, you know I, I guess maybe. From the outside, at least, it looks like your story kind of started with a love of music when you're young. Would that be fair?
1: Uh, I don't know that it did actually. I do love music, but I don't think I love music any more than the average person. So I'm not a musician. Uh, it started when you know I kind of I was it was a un- I was at university and i wanted to do you I know mean, at university as at victoria university in wellington and they give you these really long holidays like 3 months and so i thought well, what am i going to do for this 3 months i didn't have any plans to go overseas or anything so i thought i should do some kind of project and at that time Youth suicide was a huge issue in New Zealand. Wellington had the highest youth suicide rate in the world. And I just thought that this was a crazy thing that everyone should know about. You know, I knew knew nothing about it myself or how to solve it, but I thought that it's something that we should be talking about. And so I decided to organise a concert to raise awareness of the kind of epidemic of youth suicide in in Wellington and also to raise awareness of all all the support organisations for youth. So that was my university holiday project project. my friend, I was working at Radioactive as a volunteer. My friend, uh, Gemma at BFM gave me Neil Finn's home phone number and said, you should try and get Neil Finn to play. And so I, I knew Crowded House were a really big band. I didn't know that Neil Finn, I knew he was one of the singers, but I didn't know how famous he was. So I just called this number and he answered. And I said, Hey, my name's Rebecca. I'm from Wellington. And Um, I'm I'm organizing a concert to raise awareness of youth suicide and I'd love you to play. And and I said, obviously, Gemma gave me your phone number. And he listened to why I was passionate about it. he asked lots of questions and he said, you know, this is a topic that is really important to me as well. and, And I'd love to I'd love to be a part of it, but can you send me a fax? Because this is back in like 1998 or something, so it wasn't an email. And I remember I went home and I said to mum, I've, I've got to send a fax to Neil Finn. So we went off to Dick Smith um, in Porirura and bought a fax machine so I could send a fax off to Neil Finn. And I called him the next day and he said yes. And so then, I'm, because he said yes, like sheif, I got Sheifu and Head Like A Hole, who were all the kind of big bands. I think we had 15... Or so, artists across two stages at the Wellington Town Hall in Civic Square, and it was like I think we had fifteen thousand people. And Mikey Havoc came and um, hosted it on on live on um, television. it was like it was it was an incredible experience, and that's what got me into music really. Because after that, Neil Finn's manager, who'd kind of mentored me through, because his manager was in Sydney. And then Neil Finn said, you know, you're going to have to talk to my manager just to get it all confirmed. And he was asking me things like, do you have a stage manager? Do you have a PA system? I was like, I knew nothing about any of this stuff. And so he really helped me. And then at the end, his manager said, you know, if you'd ever like to come to Sydney, I'd love you to come and work with me. So I thought that sounded pretty cool. I'd finished my last year of uni. And then I went over and worked at Neil Finn's manager's office um, for a year and then I kind of, I always wanted to do my own thing and I was managing my own little Sydney band that I discovered, or actually from Brisbane, um, who were playing the pubs. So they started to do really well, so I started my own Band management company. I think two years after I moved to Sydney,
0: and I was about twenty-three. That alone is an incredible story. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're obviously that, that's quite sort of entrepreneurial. I mean, like, you know, most university students, um, you know, they look at their three-month holiday and they go, right, you know, how little can I get away with and still survive over the next three months? And and um, and you obviously had something that was, um, you know, driving you, which 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 made you exceedingly passionate about it. Um, but you know, just to just to take a risk and to ring Neil Finn and, and right off the bat, I mean, most people get the, it's sort of the opposite order. You know, you get your, you figure out a venue and a stage manager and a PA and all that kind of stuff. And then you go, right, I need some bands to play. And, and you just sort of grab the bull by the horns, you know, have you always sort of been, um, you know, happy to, to, to take a risk and, 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 and just put yourself out there like that?
1: Well, it goes back to my first story, really. It was where I really learned this, which was when I was I think I was 12, or I just started at Wellington Girls College and um, we had to do the school project, which is what do you want to be when you grow up? And there was like a list of questions you had to go on. You had to find someone who had this career and go out with your questions like what study did you, st- what did you study at school to become a you know a nurse or whatever you wanted to be. And I thought, well, I, why would you not want to be the prime minister? That's obviously the best job, like that's the top job. And so... I called the prime minister's office. It was actually, so I called David Longy's office because he had just stepped down from being prime minister at that point. And, but I thought he was a super cool guy and I thought it would be really cool if I could get an interview with him. And, and, and his office said, you know, you need to send a letter and you need to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. So I sent off my letter and I called back a week later and they were like, yep, we've scheduled you in next Tuesday at I can't remember what it was like, two o'clock or something, and I went and told my teacher I've got an interview with David Longie set up. I need to leave school and go and do my interview, and it was a social studies teacher. Didn't believe me, and they were like, "No, you don't." And then the 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 prime minister's office called the school to say they had to reschedule the time, and then they were like, "Oh, (laughs) like she actually does have an interview set up," and um, but and I went and met him, and he was lovely, and I remember him like sitting with his like hands behind his neck and he had his feet on the table and he asked me lots of questions about why I wanted to be prime minister. And, 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 um, but the the lesson out of that was just that the school thought that that was weird and that actually, you know, if you want to get hold of someone, you just call and ask and people are way more accessible than you would think. So I think I really took that, that was a big lesson at that age and I use the same approach and I have throughout my whole career, if I want to start a business or, you know, start to do a concert you just pick up the phone and you ask and the worst that can happen is someone says no but quite often you'll be surprised and people will say yes
0: it's that 30 seconds of courage, isn't it? It's like, I'm sure, maybe maybe, maybe not for you, but for, you know, ringing, uh, you know, David Longy's office or, or, or ringing Neil Finn. It's just that, it's that 30 seconds of, of I can do it and then, yeah. um, you know, and then seeing what happens. And I think that's where a lot of people, um, you know, that's, sort of, that's where they struggle was just that, that, that first step. It often seems, you know, in the, in the scheme of organizing a, a concert, you know, ringing Neil Finn is, 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 is relatively minor, but at the same time, it's the first step, and once you gather a bit of momentum, it things to, sort of seems to flow from there. But I guess the answer to my question is that yes, you obviously always have been relatively, um, you know, happy to, to try things and put yourself out there. At least you've had some experience of it of it working. Um, are you still, you know, obviously uh, it's a bit of a bit of a tangent, but you know, the, the youth suicide thing that was obviously you were very passionate about. Um, I mean, I. I you know, don't remember the 90s uh, and to this degree, but, you know, has it got better? Has it got worse? Is it still something that you're concerned about and working on at all?
1: I, so I've just moved back. So I moved to Sydney straight after I organised that concert, really, in 2000, so it was like a year later. Um, and, and I moved back 20 years later. So I did remember looking at the New Zealand Youth Suicide stats probably around, I don't know, five or six years ago or seven years ago. And seeing that a, a drop after 1990, was so ninety-eight, ninety nine, 99, whatever that event was, I don't, not that I'm saying I take credit for it, but it did put it on the, you know, it became a kind of political topic because that concert did raise a lot of, it was a lot of questions as to whether we should be talking about youth suicide in the media because, you know, there was all these rules about not reporting youth suicide in the media um, and whether or not that that was, you know, that actually made sense or not. And it did, and I remember being quite pleased to see the numbers dropping. Now I've come back to New Zealand. I think they have more recently increased again. Obviously, it's been a really tough few years for people, um, and I do I do see the mental health system in New Zealand being quite a long way behind. You know, just in terms of me as a as a you know and see the mental health system in Australia, because I know how easy it is to get to see a psychologist. There's been times in my life, you know, my book where I've been really stressed, and I've gone to my GP, and in Australia you get a referral, and that you get six free sessions. Everyone gets six free sessions with a with a with a psychologist if you need if your GP thinks you need it. And that is just it's not easy. And in, in, in New Zealand, I was trying to get a psychologist for 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 someone I'm related to, and they're like they can't give you a referral. And yet I was going online trying to find, and emailing, and calling, and going, "Hey, can you see this person?" And um, like it was just really hard. So I think there's still a long way to go in terms of how do we, how do we solve that problem? It's a
0: bigger question than than both you and I, but yeah, yeah, it's a, um, it's, I think, I I don't know the Australian system, but I certainly know that, yeah, there's some, there's some work to do probably everywhere in terms of that. Um, but anyway, and back to you. So, so you obviously, you, you put on this concert. You, um, it's a, it's a, it's a huge success, um, in, in everything you were trying to achieve by the sounds of it. Um, and then um, you get this phone. You obviously do a, an incredible job. Um, you know the fact that the Neil Finn manager decides to offer you a job. You move to Sydney. Um, you said you're you're managing a, a band that you sort of found over there. Um, what happens next?
1: Yeah, well, Neil Finn's manager said you should find a little band. And manage them, just so you can learn the ins and outs of how the industry works. So I was his assistant. It was the time when, if if your listeners remember the pop stars, um, there was that band Bardo. So we also did Bardo in our office. So I was their assistant. That was my first job in Sydney. And they were all a little bit older than me, but I was kind of driving them around and organizing their schedules. And and um and then I started managing this little band on the side called George who I loved and I organized for them to record a song. We managed to get on Triple J and we you know, booked a tour and probably a year and a half or so later they really started to take off and I left and set up my own management company <clears throat> and, yeah, they had a number one record. Um, I came back to New Zealand for a holiday. I think it was like, I don't know, it was I don't know, it would have been probably about 2002 or so and i went to the new zealand music awards and there was these this very young kid and his dad there who'd been flown up by warner australia they would just won the smoke-free rock quest and their name their, their band was called evermore and they hadn't signed to a record label yet and so i just was in wellington i thought i'll drive out to fielding maybe i can give them some advice um because they were like 14 to 18 years old at that point and um and I just love the music, and I love them. So I started managing Evermore right from the start, and they were my first kind of of my own in my own company, my really first big client. And so I managed them for about ten years, maybe eight years, eight something like that. Through that whole period, with it, we had a lot of success. And and then I also managed in the end eleven other artists, mainly Australian. Well, they were all Australian artists. Yeah, based in- and. and-
0: and by, by, you ended up creating the largest independent uh, music company in Australia, is that correct?
1: No, I wouldn't say it's the largest. It was one of the largest. There was probably at that stage three, three or so big management companies of which we were one of them.
0: Yeah. yeah. And why did you decide to, obviously, uh, you know, you're working with um, Neil Finn's manager in that company. What made you decide to go, I want to give this a go by myself?
1: Um, uh, well, we talked about my future because I thought, you know, I was always pretty confident and i remember having a kind of like a one-on-one and him mapping out how i could increase my commissions over time and i could see that my little band was taking off and that how much money the company was going to make versus how much money i was going to make and that you know over time i could increase my share to something like 5% of their and what that might mean for me and i was like what about the other 15% um, so i thought and i thought i should be doing it myself so yeah, I think that I just was – and I, and I just was a very bad employee as well. I always had my own ideas and we were always getting into arguments and, and you know, for – I was like, I don't know, 22 or something and
0: <laughs> arguing you know, about how thinking. things should
1: be done. I totally knew everything. I was just not a good employee. And, and I figured – I think he actually said to me, you know, you should probably do your own thing. I don't think you're cut out to be an employee. And I was like, <laughs> Right. that's
0: that's That's You know It's good uh, An interesting foresight From him at least And for yeah. you to understand that Because a lot of times I think if you're not You know If you're not cut out To work for someone else Then um, you sort of sit there Bashing your head against the wall Thinking that you're You know It's not right for you But uh, you know you're, You know, you don't fit in But the reality is It's just not the right place for you So that's totally. quite interesting And I'd imagine that You know Over that sort of Decade or so That you're doing that It's quite a transformative time For music With the introduction Of technology mm. And the way that sort of Revolutionised the industry
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it was a great industry to to be learning from because there were really very few rules. And, you know, there's kind of some cowboys in that industry as well. But, you know, you could, if you were creative and entrepreneurial, you could do some interesting things. So I remember we did things like in Evermore's concerts, we started recording them live and then burning them to CD whilst the band were doing the encore, we were, we were out the back, you know, we had someone, someone burning CDs and then we had like the live concerts and would sell them as the merch after the show. Um, we did some interesting like free download stuff when it was very, that kind of thing was very new and used it as a way to build our email lists, you know, which now is kind of commonplace, but back then that was, you know, not really done. So yeah, it was super fun and I think, yeah, I learned to take risks and try new things. And sometimes, I mean, quite a lot of the times they wouldn't work, but sometimes they worked incredibly well. And it was like, (laughs) wow, it was uh, very rewarding and, and kept life interesting.
0: Yeah, I bet. are you still um, you know are you still in touch with the you know the bands that you manage? And you obviously, I know that when you you know that you work quite closely with you know you get, you get really close with people, and particularly mm. in the music industry, if you're touring, you know I know you you, you pretty much you know live with each other twenty four seven, and um, you, you get some pretty significant bonds. Are you still you know in touch with with the bands that you worked with?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean I still am in touch with so Lisa Mitchell was another one of my big artists. I, I have a lot of love for her, and I think she's an incredible talent. I'm Matt Corby you know, a little bit. The Evermore guys I'm very close to and they're like my little brothers, I feel like. very, <clears throat> I feel like they're family and they're, they're parents as well. So I'm, I still see a lot and talk to them a lot. In fact, um the middle one, Peter, is the godfather of uh, my son, <laughs> Bobby. Oh, wow.
0: So, yeah. oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, from, from sort of <clears throat> reading about you, it seems as though uh, you were at the big day out and you had sort of maybe what I would maybe, uh, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe just a quarter-life crisis. Or um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want to sort of explain that and, and what, what happened and what that meant?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, although I was in the music industry, I never felt like I really fitted in. I mean, it's hard to find. I, mean, I often feel like I don't fit in anywhere because I guess I'm quite introverted and just. Um, but it wasn't my life. Like, as much as I loved the bands as people and I loved the kind of excitement of having hits um, and being on that ride, I didn't want to, I didn't see it being something I was going to do for the rest of my life. I didn't love it in the same way that others around me loved it. And there also wasn't a lot of role models, particularly female role models in the music industry, where I thought I, I could if I, I could eventually be like them. And I do remember being, I'd been on the Big Day Out tour, I don't know, like six years in a row, and I was backstage. I think it was a band I was managing, Operator Please were on the main stage. And I just felt like I was in someone else's shoes. It just wasn't where I felt that, I felt like someone would be so happy and to be where I am right now, but I just felt like I wasn't, it wasn't me. And I felt very stuck because I had built this business and it's not the kind of business you can sell a music management company because I'm a key person in all of my contracts, the, the bands, although I had staff, they were, I, they were I, met, I was their manager and I made the decisions and so I could never sell that. So I built this quite profitable business that I'd put all my, you know, sweat and <laughs> life into and I just didn't know how to get out of it and what I might do next. So, yeah, I had a moment where I really remember crying and thinking oh, I'm just completely stuck and I'm unhappy and I want to make a change and do something different.
0: And, and you certainly did make a change. And, and, and how did that process look? I mean, obviously you, you, you did step away from, from that, that company. Um, you knew that it wasn't an easy, easy decision. How did, you, how did you make that decision? What did that process look like?
1: Oh, look it's not perfect I mean it's kind of funny I was thinking of what else I could do and I do remember seeing that movie The Social Network when it remember that Facebook movie and thinking that that looks like a lot of fun even though I didn't know anything about technology I thought that's going to be the next you know the next music industry is is technology and you know you could still have hits which I liked like you could build something and it gets an audience and momentum um And so I thought I'll do something in technology. And so I had my initial idea was to build a kind of, it was a website, it was slightly before apps were, they were a thing, but they weren't huge where fans could sell tickets to concerts on behalf of bands and make a commission. So that was my first idea because I could see how clunky, like the advertising, You know, when you're doing a concert tour, you spend so much money on posters on the street and, you know, putting an ad in the newspaper and you have no idea whether it's effective or not. So my idea was, could you get the fans to actually promote the concerts online and make a commission and, you know, use your advertising money more effectively, more measurably. So I took the money that I'd made in my music company and I started hiring engineers in India and like, um, a graphic designer in Sydney. And I just had no idea what I was doing, but I built this website called posse.com. Um, and got it up. And it actually worked really well. Like it's, I think we sold $2 million worth of tickets in the first year or so. Um, The bands and the artists, you know, the bands and the managers and things loved it. But the problem was it relied on Ticketmaster and Ticketek and different ticketing sites. We had to integrate with them because they had exclusive deals with all the venues. It was like, like, it was quite cumbersome to get new clients on board because you had to get approval from the artists themselves, the manager, the promoter, the venue, the ticketing company. So the sales cycle was it was expensive because you had to put a lot of effort into bringing the, the tour on sale. And then your client, which was the tour, would, would end every eight weeks. So you're effectively churning all of your customers every eight weeks um, when the tour finished. So it was just never going to be profitable. So... I mean, I learned a massive amount through that and it was disappointing to realize that I wasn't going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, (laughs) um, but, um, but I thought I would take what I'd learned and build something else.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I guess that's sort of sort of what you did but also at the same time, what a you know what a what a pivot. I mean, obviously you sort of stayed in in, in your area of of, of knowledge. Yes. Uh, maybe it was a, a different underpinning. It was it was technology rather than um, you know bands. But you obviously knew a lot about the music industry, and um, you know on the surface it certainly makes sense. It's not until mm. you you know you, you, like you said you turn a new client every eight weeks, and there's all these integrations, and I guess um, you know the the ticket monopolies you know probably want to try and integrate that service into them at some stage, and. Um, and and so did you did you close down Posse or did you sort of merge that into this next business?
1: So I actually sold it not for profit. I sold it for a small amount. Um, and the kind of lead engineer who built it left or went to Future Music and they still run it. It's called Future Fans. So Future Music was one of our biggest clients. They're a dance festival company. So they do Future Music Festival and they do a bunch of other, they bring out a bunch of other dance acts. And their fans are, you know, very passionate and um, very kind of technically savvy, so it worked really well for them as a way of selling their tickets. So they they bought the software and ran it under their own name.
0: Okay, yeah. And so where did um, where did Hey You come from?
1: Yeah, so I started, uh, I kept the name Posse, and I started again um, as a uh, an app to help. It was more app-based this time, and it was about, Small, it was about recommending because I'd learned a lot about why people share and it, it's a lot to do with status, like showing off I know this band or I know this shop or cafe or I've been to New York and these are the places that I went. And so I thought I could build a system to help cafes and restaurants promote themselves through um, through an app where people could add their favourite places and then their friends could see what they liked. Um, and I, that scaled pretty well to it was like, 60,000 shops I think signed up to it in the end and about half a million people were using it but I never had any revenue model so it was really just um and that was just it was early in the kind of tech ecosystem and the investors that I had around me were encouraging me just get scale and get engaged people customers and you'll figure out how to monetize it later and so I was like okay that makes sense Facebook did that right um But that that only lasts for a while. And there is a point where you do have to figure out how to monetize it. And although the shops loved it, they weren't engaged enough to be able to get them to pay kind of seamlessly. So then I had this idea, which was maybe we should get payments into the app, which meant people would be able to order and pay at the cafes and restaurants through the app. And so instead of building that, I merged the company with a group called Beat the Q, who were doing, they were very small but they had a great revenue model and a very engaged customer base. So we put their technology into our app effectively and we rebranded it so that it wasn't beat the queue and it wasn't posse. It was called Hey You and that we really focused on Australia and we are the largest, still is the largest um, kind of cafe, restaurant payments and marketing app.
0: Wow. You sort of of talk about that. You sort of talk about that like it's sort of quite flippant, but <laughs> like, um, yeah. I mean, I think I read that. Is, is there a hundred thousand weekly users now on Heyu?
1: Yeah, I think it's like a hundred thousand transactions a week or something. I might, yeah. Probably more than that now. But um, but yeah, it's like know, good staff in Sydney, and they yeah, a lot almost all the cafes in Sydney and Melbourne, and a lot of Brisbane use it, so you can go around if you're in Australia and use the app at all those
0: places. Yeah, and and did you feel, I mean, throughout this sort of journey, even even to what we're at now, you know, you've had a, a, a huge amount of success, did it? But the, the way you're sort of talking, it sort of feels like you were just sort of doing that and doing that. Did you did you feel like you were successful? Were you getting that sort of, um, you talked about the, the music industry where you, you felt like that not that you didn't belong, but, you know, you, you weren't sort of um, as engaged and enjoying and fulfilled as you could have been. Were you were you feeling that now you're having this success in the technology world?
1: Uh not really. I mean, it's hard. The thing in music I definitely felt there were times like when Evermore went number 1 and we was just it was such a great time and that felt really good. I remember being in a big day out and people clinging to the roof like trying to get in to see Evermore and like that felt great that I'd spotted it way back when in New Zealand. Um in tech, I felt like I was always comparing myself to others, and I like, you know, who were having more success, I guess. And you know, although I kind of eventually pivoted into something that worked, I, you know, I'm always, I also always evaluate as I go. So I started blogging, um, and I was very open on my blog saying, "You know, this is what I did this week. This is what I learned," but it just meant that I became hyper self-critical. And so I was always looking for what was wrong instead of, you know, and and what I could improve, which I think is a good thing, but it also probably meant that I never kind of sat back and went, hey, like there's, you know, we've built a good business here. It's actually profitable and there's, you know, some great, I was super proud of the staff that we built. That was one thing. I did feel sometimes when we'd run our kind of quarterly planning sessions and everyone would get up and talk about their goals and celebrate what they'd achieved in the last quarter and, um, we'd bring customers in who you know, cafe owners that would say that, hey, you had made a huge difference in their business and um and it had enabled them to kind of really keep going when they might have gone under without us. That made me feel proud for sure. But it was it was never me. It was more like I was proud of these people and that I'd contributed to to that. Yeah, that's that was the source of pride, I guess. But yeah, I definitely that's, did um, build a billion dollar car. In Australia now, like my peers, when I built started my company at the same time as Melanie Cliff started Canva and we were great friends and we have the same investors so I kind of always felt a bit like a failure compared to them and they are a wonderful 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 people and have built an incredible company you know but it, I can't help it you just you look at that and you go oh they seem to do everything perfectly and I seem to stuff everything up.
0: <laughs> Comparison is the thief of joy.
1: Yeah it is it is there is definitely points where I realized that you know um whatever someone else achieves actually has no impact on me. So I, that has that kind of realisation, you should just celebrate, you know, what other people achieve as opposed to um, making you feel bad about yourself.
0: Yeah. It's not a zero-sum game. It's, you know, like you can be successful and I can be successful and no one has to lose. It's, it's um, you know, everyone can win. And I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, what you're saying kind of resonates with me a little bit, you know, like um, – you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of imposter syndrome, but, you know, when, you know, you, you have success, mm. but you feel like you've sort of fluked it. And and that's sort of what I've felt like, uh, certainly at times on, on my journey, and you sort of go, well, you know, like, this has just worked because of this, or because of that, or, you know, someone else has done something similar, but done it, done it better, and, um, you know... Mm. I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is, but the yeah, I mean, you certainly have to try and focus on some of the wins you have, but when you're ambitious and entrepreneurial, there's, it's, it's such a hedonic treadmill, you know, you sort of, you get to one place and then there's just somewhere else and then, you know, you forget to celebrate the progress you actually made um, to get to where you are and, um, you know, eventually it's all about kind of the journey, isn't it? And it's a bit sort of holistic, mm-hmm. but... Um, I think I don't know what the answer is, but maybe we have to try and enjoy the process as much as the outcome. Totally,
1: yeah. I mean, when I think back now, I always felt like I was on the edge of failure, and that's what kept me going. Like I almost kind of—I don't know if I cultivated that that feeling because it was helpful in my survival. <laughs> but when I'm imposter syndrome for me, I always think of every time I moved into a new office because you're scaling up your company, you get a bigger office. And I am always like it was one in Surrey Hills that was a it was a huge office. And I just remember thinking, there is no way I'm gonna be able to pay the lease on this office in three years' time. It was like now we can, but it was always like I was worried because I knew that we were going to fail at some point and that I wouldn't yeah, you know, every office I've ever hired, I felt the same way. That these long leases, but you know, what happens when I fail and I know that I'm gonna fail at some point. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a weird way to think, isn't it? It's sort of it's sort of trying to balance that. Um, you know, I think that anyone that's successful, you know, dances on that edge of of success and failure. You know, like if if you want to play and you, and you go in and you want to play the game, you know, regardless of of you know what that is, whether it's you know sport or um, you know or business or um, you know whatever, if you're gonna flirt with the the you know the the, the ability or the potential of being successful, you also flirt with the potential of, of it not working and, and mm. that's why not everyone's willing to take the risk is because it is really scary and, and I know when you sign leases you also have to sign personal guarantees. Mm. And that means that if if your business can't pay the lease that you are then liable for your lease, which can mean your home and your, you know, that stuff and it's and it is really scary. And I think that's maybe why not everyone does it. But So what what yeah. what sort of you're, you're, you're being I think relatively humble here you know what 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 how many how big did the did your, your business get as far as like people you, you had several offices and
1: oh yeah well so we had an office in um, Sydney we had an office in Melbourne we had a person or two in Brisbane and we had a big office in Manila of um, of like a second software engineering team and the customer support team which was like an absolute joy to start and build that. That was something I was really proud of, actually. I went and stayed in Manila for quite a long time and hired our own people. We ran our own recruiting process. We hired engineers with our engineers in Sydney kind of going over. We constantly had people coming back and forth between Manila and Sydney and built a great culture in that office. So I was proud of that. Um, I probably, I don't know, in in the end, got to around 50 people in the Sydney office, maybe 20 or so in the Manila office. So yeah, yeah, it's not like a company with thousands of people, but it was still a substantial no, substantial yeah, yeah. business.
0: Well it's you know like I always think about it it's 50 people but it's 50 families you know it's it's yeah. 50 livelihoods it's 50 you know groups of people that are that are reliant on on you to um, you know continue to perform yeah. so they can they can live and it does if you look at it that way it gets a bit stressful but at the same time it's a it's an exciting opportunity you talked before a little bit about you know strengths and things and it's an interesting question you know when you were growing your businesses did you Focus on what you were good at, or did you focus on trying to um, get better at the things you weren't good at?
1: That's a very good question. I definitely focused on trying to get better at things. So, and I would always have coaches, and I'm not particularly good at kind of organization and um, administration. And like, I'm a good strategic thinker and kind of project planner, but I seeing projects through is not my strength. Um, well, I mean, I will see them through and I will make them happen just because I'm absolutely determined and I will never give up. But sometimes that cannot be the you know the best, I don't know, the best environment to work in. So there's lots of things that I, I knew that I was not good at, but I was always trying to focus on how do I get better organized? How do I get better at admin? How do I get better at managing finances? Um, and yeah, I think... Um, I do remember turning 40 not that long ago but I remember on my 40th birthday um, real thinking gosh I'm 40 now that's quite old and I have been working on this I've had this as my goal every year, so long as I can remember. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not ever going to be good at that thing. <laughs> and so maybe I'm never going to be particularly well-organized. Maybe I'm always going to be running late and maybe I should just accept that and not take on jobs or um, you know, or, or sur- surround myself with people who are good at that. And just instead of trying to get better at it, I should just try and remove that from my what I do. Um, Mm. and focus on what I am good at. I'm really good at communicating. There's lots of things that I'm good at. Um, So yeah, that was something that was quite freeing, I guess.
0: Yeah. It's quite interesting. It's a, I mean, I've, it's, it's an interesting question for anyone, you know. Like I watched, um, I was watching that Drive to Survive, that Formula One series, and it's really interesting. And just, I'm not a motorsport person, but it's really interesting behind it. And uh, Christian Horner, the guy who runs the Red Bull team, they, they asked him that question, and he said um, he, he focuses on weaknesses. Like he, he's all about you know getting better that way. But on, on the other hand, there's a, a lot of sort of dialogue that suggests that you know some things you're just naturally not inclined to be really good at, you know, and 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 the only way for you to, to to really make significant leaps forward is to is to, is to surround yourself with people that are, are good at those things and just do what you do really, really well and I mean just from the short time that we've spoken it seems like you're obviously the entrepreneur the ideas person, the sort of you can see where things are going and and, and think, you know, in a sort of a futuristic manner and then sort of creatively come up with an idea and obviously then behind it you've got a lot of um, you know, um, business um, you know, accurate And um, ability to execute as well, but um, you know, figuring out what you're good at and then trying to almost go solely at that, I think, is where it's kind of what I I think anyway. I sort of, you know, like for example, you know, we I said we run a couple of businesses and numbers. I understand, like I can read a, a P&L or a financial statement and kind of know, but it's not, I don't, it doesn't excite me, you know, like I, I much prefer the people and the culture and that sort of stuff. And I can read when someone's not doing well by looking at their face, but I, I probably couldn't pull that out of a, you know, a spreadsheet. Um, so I tried to focus more on that as well. But in a business, you kind of need a little bit of everything, don't you, at the same time?
1: Yeah. Well, So this guy, Lars Rasmussen, who's the, he founded Google Maps, he mentored me. At the beginning of starting my tech business, and we're still good friends. But he, um, he taught, So he worked at Google for a long time, set up the Sydney office, and then he went to Facebook in San Francisco. Um, and he I remember him telling me the difference between the way they did their quarterly performance review type process. So he said at Google, they would, you know, you'd have you'd write down your strengths, things that you did well, at, your kind of weaknesses, and then your manager's job was to work with you on your weaknesses and how you can get better at it. And then he said the difference was when he went to Facebook. They did the same kind of reviews, but instead of you write where your weaknesses were, and the manager's job was to remove your weaknesses and to try and get you to do more of things that you were good at. So there was never any. And I was like, that, I just thought that was a great way of looking at um, managing teams. And now I am managing a team um, and some of the work that I'm doing in Wellington, and I've got this, and I'm. I can go, that person's not a great people manager, but they're great at leading projects. So I'm thinking, you know, how do I remove the people management stuff from that person rather than trying to get them to get better at it? And how do I get them to really nail it on the project and have them be able to grow as a project man- leader rather than as a people leader? So I wow.
0: Think, uh, yeah. It's a light bulb almost, isn't it? That, you know, yeah. going far out, you know, how can we get rid of everything you're not good at? Yeah. Um, Wow. And so um, do you still, are you still involved with you hey now?
1: I'm still a shareholder, but no, I stayed on the board after I, so I had a baby in 2016 and I stayed um, in the business for another year. My co-founder had left slightly before I had the baby. So I was the kind of sole leader and it was a big responsibility and I had this baby. We brought in another CEO. I worked with him for a year. Um, I didn't love working with a different ceo in my own company i actually found that really hard um and i also really wanted to spend time with my baby so i left after a year and i stayed on the board for another year after that so and then i decided i didn't want to be the kind of founder ghost person that you know pointed out all the things people would were doing wrong and how they'd already been tried and stuff, so i thought i should just move on and, and, and do something else but yeah i still had my shares in the company and um yeah, it's still doing well, and hopefully at some point it will exit in some way.
0: Wow, yeah, cool. And um – you, you you talked about before about blogging your 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 business journey, which was which was quite interesting, and obviously you sort of got into um, you know writing and sharing your story there as well. And and from reading your website, it sort of uh, you know, I'm sure it maybe wasn't this simple, but uh, it sort of it read like you sort of had uh, dedicated quite a lot of your life to uh, to your career and to into building, and then all of a sudden you sort of said, right, well now I want to uh, I want to fall in love, and you sort yeah. of set out on a on a journey to do that, and you decided that you would uh, you would write a book. about
1: Yeah. Well, I had been writing this blog and then the blog did really well because it was so vulnerable. And then it became a New York Times column. So I did the column for a couple of years and it was quite a big column. And then I got approached to write a book and it was going to be about, you know, the challenges for women and tech and blah, blah, blah on my story. And, and I started writing it and I was just, I had this young baby and, um, I don't know. I just felt like writing a book is a huge task and I didn't love what I was writing. I thought that there's probably better people at telling the story than me who maybe they've had more success in business or so I don't know. But, um, but I thought, well, if I'm going to put something into the world, like what's the most value that I can add. And then I had built a career, but I had not, I was very unhappy in my mid thirties. I had not dated in 10 years. My first partner was sadly killed in a car accident I took that very badly. And it just, yeah, I felt very messed up for a long time about, and I just couldn't figure out how to get into a relationship again. And so I didn't try. And then I got to 34 and was like, I'm going to miss out on having a family. And I'm going to be on my own for the rest of my life and going on holidays by myself, which is what I used to do, um, unless I do something about this. And so I kind of, I know that I'm a very determined person. And if I set myself a goal, I tend to stick to it. So I set myself a goal of going on one date every week for a year. And I did that. And I learned so much through that process from going to never dating to, um, to doing one date every week for a year. And you know, I got hurt and I, um, lots lots of rejection, but lots of self-reflection as well. Um, and at the same time, I was trying to build the business and raise capital. And and then it took me three years and 138 dates, <laughs> and eventually I kind of figured out a lot of stuff, both about business and about love. Um, you know, I learned a lot about relationships and building connections with people, um, which I needed to learn for the business. And then I was able to apply what I was learning in dating back to business and business back to dating. Uh, but at the end of it, I met my wonderful husband now, who's was my 138th date, and we um, we have two beautiful children. But, you know, when I was when I was writing this business book, I was thinking that this is, I was so happy. Um, and I was like, this is really, i thinking about my life, like what I've gotten the most value out of. If I'm going to look back on my life when I'm 80 or something, I'll go, well, what I did in terms of deciding to find a partner and what I learned through that experience and what I got at the end of it was of so much higher value than anything I'd ever got out of business um, or could ever possibly get, even if the business had gone incredibly well. Like you know, love and family for me was everything. And so I thought I would tell that story rather than the business story. So that was why I wrote the book. And yeah, it's a very personal book. Um, and hopefully, I think hopefully it's a good story, even if you don't, um, if, if you don't want to find a partner, um, there's lots of interesting kind of insights in it about relationships in general and how to make them work. Um, but yeah, I was like, if anyone out there was like me, hopefully they could get some value from that story.
0: And so you didn't um, you didn't sit out to write a book on the um, on finding love. You just were, were sitting there writing a book about business. Realized it wasn't new, but the, the 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 thing that had brought you, I guess, the most joy and value in your life was that, that you could you know, give to other people was was your relationships. So you pretty much pivoted on the spot. So did you yeah. sort of ring a publisher and say, "Hey, look, I, <laughs> I know I'm writing this book about business, but I've got this idea, and this is this is what
1: I want to do." Uh, no, I kind of ghosted the publisher, which I feel a bit bad about. Still, I was supposed to get them a certain number of words, and I never did. But we hadn't done an agreement at that point, so um, I just thought I wanted to write this this book about love, and I didn't want to take it to a publisher until I knew you know, I had until I had it worked out exactly how it was going to work, because I thought that they might have some ideas about how what, you know what it should work and what it needed to contain, and whether it should be more story or more like documentary style and so I wanted to try lots of different ways of writing it and make sure I was really happy with it before I took it to a publisher. I um was struggling to find the time because I was doing a lot of consulting work in Sydney. I was doing like some work at KPMG and uh, it just I was just find, finding it hard to focus on writing. I was trying to do it in the morning and I had a one and a three-year-old as well. <clears throat> and um then COVID came. And all the consulting work stopped and the events that I was going to do stopped. And so I was just at home every day. And so I thought, well, this is the time for me to write the book. So I did a deal with Rod um, and I said, I'll work for five hours in the morning. You look after the kids and then we'll swap and I'll do that. I'll look after them. And from, from the day onwards, you know, you can work for as late as you want, but, but I just need that time in the morning so I can do something productive and get this book done. And so that was what kicked it off. So it started in Sydney. I think in probably March last year was when I started. No, not last year. March twenty twenty was when I got really serious about it. Um, we moved to New Zealand in September or August that year. Yeah, late August, and got into MIQ <laughs> with our two young kids. And by then, I'd pretty much finished my first draft, and I was starting to work on my second draft. And um, I wrote an article which about the experience of MIQ with two kids. And traveling and it was like quite a personal story about, um, you know, what it felt like going through the New Zealand border. And um, and I sent it to Stuff and they put, published it and it was this, became this a viral hit. It was like the most read article on Stuff that week or something. Um, and uh, Jenny, who runs Alan Nunn, when the publishing company here, reached out to me after reading the article and said, have you written, you know, have you thought about writing a book? And I was like, oh, I am writing a book. That's probably not what you're going to expect given the given my background, but I'll send it to you. I'd love to get some advice. So I thought it would just be nice to connect with a publisher and get some feedback given I was kind of now a bit further down the track. And so I sent it to her and she really loved it and she said, I want to do it. So, um, and then Alan and Unwin Australia also wanted to do it. So that seemed like a good home for it. And I appreciated her reaching out to me as well. So, and, and yeah she really got it so
0: that was yeah. how the
1: publishing of the book came about
0: quite sort of serendipitous <laughs> as well isn't it you know you think that you know COVID that uh, it's all bad but if that hadn't happened you might have not have made this all work and then written it now, I want to ask about the the one day a week for a year yeah if you met someone on like week four and you're like you know I'd like to see you again <laughs> like, Yeah. but I'm also seeing someone else the next week and the week after and the week after so you know like is that how is that what you did you just went on or did you have some of those weeks were with the same people
1: well so uh no so 138 first dates um i did my commitment was to keep going even if i did meet someone but you know there was a couple of times there was one probably i think november the first year where i thought this could be the, the guy and i was really excited about it and I, I stopped dating at that point and just focused on but it was a huge disaster <laughs> you are reading the book um but um but yeah, so I stopped then. Then I restarted again the following year. Um, but when I met Rod, my husband, I honestly I knew at that point that and I and I I had a date actually scheduled for the next night, and I didn't I didn't do it. So yeah, although it was my commitment to keep dating, I, I did yeah. stop. Stop when I found the one.
0: How did you find <laughs> 137 other people to go on dates with? I mean, that's a, uh, is it it's technology? Very,
1: yeah, it's very easy. I mean, it's like. I mean, I was on, I was on every dating app that you could find. So I started with eHarmony and cause I thought no one would be able to see my profile. Cause I thought I had a bit of high, I, mean, I was not super high profile, but I had a bit of a profile. I didn't want to be on the apps. Um, and then I gave that up, of course, cause everybody was on Tinder eventually. So I, I, uh, I ended up meeting Rod on Tinder actually, but, um, but it was very easy to get a good pipeline of of date candidates coming through all the time and i had yeah. a bit of a. Um, I mean, i mean i developed, i used a lot of the same principles of business just because that was how that's how i think so you know i worked out that some of the dates i was turning up on were not that they're never going to work and then you have this kind of whole awkwardness of you know i have to say i don't want to see you again i feel bad about wasting your time and i don't want you to pay for anything because like it's just not a good fit so i worked out things like um to build a pipeline, so like a sales pipeline that you have in business, mm-hmm. and so I was like, you know, if you want to, I wanted to get the, if I was going to have fifty two slots for the year, I wanted to have the best quality, like you know, you when you focus your time on the best candidates, right? If you're trying to, you're trying to do yeah. sales, <laughs> um, and so best prospects, so, um, so I kind of thought you're going to have quantity at the top of the funnel, so I would go on all the sites and sign my up, self up for courses, and ask my friends and so on. And then I was messaging lots of people, and I worked out the best template messages just by t- trying and iterating <laughs> what would get the best responses. And then I um, I did phone calls on Sundays, every Sunday afternoon phone calls, and then that would be kind of another filter. And then I would have my dates on Thursdays in the same place. So yeah, it was a lot of similar stuff from 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 business. But um,
0: how interesting! <laughs> What's the I don't want to focus on the worst here, but what's the funny, I'm sure it's in the book, but what's the funniest story from a first date that you've got?
1: Uh, I mean, it's not full of, the book is not about funny dates of like weird men on the internet, although there are some, but that's not what it's about. It's really about learning and it's about love and it's about becoming Mm. the right person as much as it is about finding the right person. Um, There was one who was, I think it was my second date, where before I had figured out the kind of filtering before you system,
0: refined yeah. your process yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And so I, and I remember thinking that he was a, it was like something about like games. I thought he was a game developer. I so thought he's going to be really, he's going to be really smart because he develops games. And um, and then he turned up and he was like, I remember wearing sneakers that would definitely smell if he took them off, <laughs> and like it's kind of StarCraft T-shirt, and he looked like he hadn't been outside for a really long time. And it turned out he was a gamer, not a game developer. Like he played games at home in his parents' house all day. And and it was really awkward. I feel bad because he was really quite nice. Um it was just really hard to talk because he's just he had never it was super nervous. Mm-hmm. And it was just not it was obviously not gonna be a good fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I felt bad about it as well. So um, yeah, just like these are the things that you learn.
0: It seems like um one of one of your sort of um I don't want to say one of the key things that seems to be quite common throughout our discussion so far is that you've you've sort of seemed to have shared everything really authentically on your journey you know whether that was sort of um you know in in, in business or, or, or music and then in love as well and and it's almost in that sort of vulnerability that you've been able to find what it is that you're you know, that, that's led you down the path that's, you know, where you are today. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah. I did figure I mean, it was quite scary. It was definitely scary at first to write a blog because when you're a founder and you raise, right, especially you've got investment capital and stuff, you want to look like you're perfect and you're getting everything right. And all you ever hear and all I ever heard about was kind of this company has raised this much money and this company's hired this amazing person or it's got this much growth and I just, my experience was not that. My experience every day was that this is really hard, and I'm always afraid to fail. And um, and so I took a you know, when I started writing about it, the personal stuff, I just could see straight away that it really connected with people, and I could see the shares were nuts in terms of like, and, and people were talking about it. And I also noticed that when I would go and speak at events, people would go, "Oh, I just loved your." Blog and I felt like that too, and so I think I realised that even though it felt scary, it was actually very safe. The more vulnerable you are, the safer you are in some in some regards. Like I have never been the victim of any kind of bullying online, or and if people have, I'm not saying that that's anyone's fault at all. But I do feel like vulnerability is in some ways a protective mechanism. That you know, the more vulnerable, yeah, it's actually not scary, and it actually does really add that it's got to always be something you've got to be super conscious of is that it's always about what can provide someone else with something that they might find useful. So I'm trying to think as I'm talking to you now, I don't want to just bloat on about, you know, my um, weaknesses or stuff. Cause it can like, that sounds like an overshare, but it's got to be about like, how can I frame this in a way that someone else might find this useful?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and then and and you know, you talked about there being risks of you know people that are investors or colleagues or you know other sort of shareholders or stakeholders, you know, reading what you've what you've written. But um, I'm I'm reading a book at the moment by a guy called Naval Ravikant. Ravikant I'm not sure if you've heard, heard of him. You heard yes. him? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and so really interesting guy, and he says that um, you know the only You know, he talks about being authentic because it's your only true sense of, um, you know, like no one else can copy that. You know, there's no, there's that's the, your your skill set that you have, and the the lens that you see the world through, and the 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 filters that you make your decisions mm. on, are, are completely unique, and that's really what makes you you, and that's your point of difference, that's your USP, that's you, um, that's what you have to try and scale because no one else can replicate that, and and it sort of seems like the, you know, when you're being vulnerable, and when you're being open, and when you're being real about what's happening, that, um, you know although it's that's your truth and that's you, other people are also finding some f- form of relatability in that and I think that um, you know running a business and starting a business and growing a business um, it's it's certainly very tough and can feel very lonely at times and mm. um, and you know when you read or listen or hear about someone else talking about something else, it does give you that sense that kind of what's happening is 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 normal almost mmm yeah and I think um I think maybe that's sort of I mean I, I don't know you know but it sort of seems like that you being so authentic in your and your sharing and and, and, and vulnerability is has is almost kind of your superpower
1: yeah I think it is I mean it's not to say it's not scary though it is always scary every time I hit push you know publish on anything the more personal it is the more scary it is but generally the more successful it is in terms of like you can see people how people react to it, because then they're the ones where you think, you think, does anyone else think like this, or is it just me? And because you haven't read other people saying that they've <laughs> this before, um, like I remember, I did write, I wrote a blog once about lying and how I, um, how I realised that I told lies. It was an investor said, you know, that what was, I asked him for a piece of advice because they'd been super successful. And so the best piece of like advice I can give you is to never tell a lie. And that's what trips people up. And I was like, but I tell lies all the time. And so I realized just some little things, you know, like everyone does, but I was so nervous to put that out there. Um, you know, like ignoring something in your business that you know is a problem is essentially a lie or like skipping, leaving something out of an investor presentation. So I wrote this um, article about it and it just went completely nuts. Um, and, like businesses were using it internally. Um, and then I wrote the same kind of story for the New York Times. And then I was on CNBC and stuff doing interviews about this article. I was like, "Ah, oh, okay, that was the scariest article I think I've ever written because no one wants to admit that they tell lies, right? Um, but it wasn't just me. It turns out that everyone does this and this is a problem in every business. Um, so I think, yeah, you, yeah, I was really scared to publish the book because I thought of all these things that were going through my head, and it seems like other people would might have been thinking similar kind of things, but you don't know until you put it out there.
0: Mm. <laughs> it's that, you know, I, when you said before about, you know, you, you're nervous pushing that post you know or publish button – it's kind of the same, relates back to that same phone call you made when you were 12, that 30 mm-hmm. seconds of courage to ring David Longley's office and that 30 seconds of courage to <laughs> ring Neil Finn's uh, home home line. It's sort of that, that little bit of courage to to put yourself out there. And, yeah, you're right. I guess you're thinking that, you know, is everyone going to come back and go, no, no one thinks like that. It's only you, you liar. Or is everyone <laughs> yeah, going to come exactly. back and go, absolutely, I, I 100% relate with you. Um, You talked about, you know, you've obviously done you do a bit of consulting work and 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 after you've um, you know stepped away from your business and maybe at the same time as well. What sort of you know, I know you run a few courses and stuff online now, but what was your consulting work sort of based around? I assume it's sort of other tech companies that are growing and you're helping them. Is that would that be correct?
1: Uh yeah. So well I started to get asked to go into corporates more to, you know, to teach them like how does entrepreneurs think and uh, growth, like lots of things in growth marketing that you do as a founder of a tech business that lots of other more established businesses wouldn't even think about. So I've kind of started a little agency where I had friends that were working at companies like Canva and Atlassian and not necessarily the founders, but people who were in senior positions there that had learned, um, interesting things. And like my friend at TEDx Sydney is all that She, she loved teaching public speaking. So I started this little agency where, um, businesses could kind of hire in someone who worked at one of these high growth tech companies to train their team for a day. So that was the, that was the idea of it. And I did that for a, you know, a couple of years. I, I went into KPMG for a stint and helped them build an accelerator program for startups. And um, yeah. And then I wrote the book and more, most recently I'm now in Wellington and I'm doing some work with Wellington NZ. So that is um the kind of economic development agency for the region i'm super passionate wellingtonian and i can see that there are still uh, some problems with wellington that i thought would probably be solved by now although it's an amazing city there's still a big income inequality problem and i that's something i'm very passionate about contributing to too so i'm doing some work with them on yeah. some economic economic development programs particularly for maori and in, and in the tech sector too
0: Amazing, amazing. How have you, um, how how old are your kids now, Rebecca? Uh, The eldest
1: just turned six and the youngest is
0: three. So my question is, how have you balanced the last sort of six years or, or, you know, like, you know, we sort of talked before how you'd almost, um, maybe not sacrifices, it might be the wrong word, but you've been so focused on your career and what you were building. um, And then you um, you obviously met Rod and, and then you've gone on to have kids. How did you move from... Um, you know being you know almost entirely focused on 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 your career and and, and building your the businesses that you were involved with to then um, you know balancing love and family and, and life as well and, and 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 still being able to you know do to be successful in both areas.
1: Well, it was really hard again. I mean I think I had spent so long focused on my career. I did think when I had a baby, My plan was to bring her into the office. So I went back to work after three weeks and I put a little nursery in one of the meeting rooms and I had a babysitter full time and I would go in and breastfeed and I'd breastfeed in the meetings. And I just thought that this was like, I just thought I'm going to charge through and this isn't going to impact my career at all. Um, And then, and you know, even my second child, they were both in daycare for quite long, full days from quite early and then when COVID hit, that is what really changed me because all of a sudden I was at home with two very young kids and I had nothing to do um, except be with them. And I found that my brain was so wired to be productive. I wanted to like get on my phone and check the news sites or I should be doing something other than just sitting here watching my kids play in a stream. <laughs> I found it, re- it, was, it was like coming down off an addiction. Um, that was kind of how it felt in my brain. And, but then after a while, my brain started changing. And I started, I guess, recovering from my addiction of, to productivity and realizing that I'd get to the end of the day and go, you know, that time I just watched the kids and played with them in the stream, that was the best time of the day. And in fact, probably one of the best moments of my life. <laughs> and so, and so, um, and so I started really changing and spending heaps more time with them. And now I can't imagine, you know, like, I still feel like the balance isn't quite where I'd like it to be. I'd love to be with them almost all the time. But I love also, I've discovered how much I love writing and and kind of using my experience hopefully to make it some impact. So it's just balancing things that I like doing and contributing in a way that I want to contribute with spending time with the kids. But, yeah, I absolutely pick them up from school three days a week, spend time with them after school, uh, you know, preschool. I Like I took my daughter out. She was a bit nervous about going to school today, which we were saying because I was slightly late to this interview. So I took her out to breakfast and it's just like, um, yeah, they come first and it makes me so happy. That's just a, that's just a, I don't know if you'd say it's maturity, or but I do think actually that COVID period was just incredible godsend for me as a, in terms of I I've had to recover from my productivity reduction and spend time on what what's
0: better. <laughs> interesting. But now, you know, you look back and you say that, you know, that's probably one of the best things is that, by the way you're talking now, the best thing that's happened that, you know, COVID and then, you know, recovering from your productivity addiction, which is an interesting yeah. term in itself. Um, <laughs> yes. But um, oh, it sounds like, a you know, like a, we've, I've got two daughters now, um, you know, and um, it's always, a you know, anyone that's ambitious, I think, or, uh, you know, everyone's busy now, but I think that, you know, trying to make sure that, um, I had had Mike Alsop on the podcast last week, and um, and he said kids spell love T I M E. You know, and it's so true. You know, like, and that's one thing that you know I've had to realize as well that if you respond to that email fifteen minutes later, you know, and and you know that's not going to make a difference to that. But if you spend that fifteen minutes, you know, before your daughter goes to preschool, it makes a big difference. So, I'd say, um it's a it's a you know it's a fine art as well i think hey just to just to finish up Rubik, I know um you've got a um you know shoot soon um just a couple of quick things what's your Core skill, you know, you, you've been successful in a number of different areas. You know, like you know things I didn't even know about, you know, and 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 all the research that I've done, you know, and 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 you know from when you were you know twelve meeting the the, the prime minister or, or David Longie to you know putting on this huge successful concert to you know going to work with Neil Finn's manager and starting your own record label and then starting tech companies and writing books. You know, underneath it all, you know, what is it that you think you're good at?
1: Uh, I think I'm pretty creative. Like I'm always thinking, if I see something, I'm always thinking of ideas for how something could be better. I think that is a um, how to link things together. So that's that's probably what the writing skill is. It's a process of constantly linking things in my brain and making connections. So I think I'm good at kind of spotting opportunities. I'm willing to take risks. Um, I just, even though it's still scary, I just think that the, you know, I'm always trying to balance the regret and ometer of like looking back and not taking the risk with the kind of riskometer of all if this goes wrong. So I'm definitely lean towards the minimizing the regretometer as opposed to the risk. Um, And then I have to say my core strength, I'm a good communicator. That is one thing. I'm good at speaking and I guess rallying people um, and connecting with people. Um, And then I'm just super determined. So I'm not the definitely not the smartest person or the, I don't do things in the best way. I mean, there's lots of things, you know, lots of people who are way better at getting things done or do things much more. Um, what's the word smoothly and efficiently, uh, efficiently. Yeah. But I will not stop. So that's my, um, that's, that's the kind of the 138 dates, I guess. I don't, I know that I'm, not going to do this in the in the right way. I'm going to make heaps of mistakes, and I'm going to learn a lot. But I know I will not give up, and so I think that is kind of the core the core thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. I, I you know, from that conversation, I would, I would certainly agree. Um, what what's on your radar at the moment? You know, where to next? You said you're creative. You said you're sort of always looking for opportunities to make things better. Where's what's got your attention at the moment?
1: Uh, well, I'm writing another book. I can't say too much about it because it's this one is not my story. I'm writing someone else's story I've been who's who's kind of uh blessed me with allowing me to tell her story and that uh you'll hopefully that'll be out be out by the end of next year um but I'm loving I love the person she's amazing um and very interesting but I'm also loving the I the, the kind of connect making connections of someone else's life as opposed to my own just my own life so I would love to see myself in the future telling the stories of ins- inspiring and interesting woman. That's, that's probably what's getting me the most excited at the moment.
0: Cool, exciting. Well, I look forward to when we when we can learn more about it. Um, what are you most proud of? You know, you look back and again. You know, various um, you know, incredible feats of success and and everything from you know uh, you know being an author to being a parent to um, you know your your, um, your your business career as well. When you look back on it now, what are you what are you most proud of?
1: From my life, I'm definitely most proud of my family. That's the easiest that's and that was not easy to get that was a lot of work and a constant work of of making the relationship work even though you know it's a beautiful relationship I have with my husband it's still hard I think every relationship is hard and but I've made that work and it's amazing so that is probably what I'm most proud of and the two children that we've created Um, and from a work perspective I'm most proud of the book if I'm honest I feel like I feel like it's a really good book. <laughs> like, um, I mean, there's lots of, when I say about the business. There's lots of things I would do differently about the business and things. But I think it's a good book. And um, and I yeah, I put a lot of work into it. And I'm, I'm really proud of it.
0: Where can people get it?
1: I think you can get it anywhere. You can get it everywhere. Every um, bookstore in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can get it online. You can get it at the warehouse. I think you can get it in every Did you do an audio shop. book? Have you done an audio yes. book? Yes, there's an audio book. Did you read it? I did. Did you? It wow. took me I think uh, so about 10 days it was a really long time I lost my voice in the middle. It was much mm-hmm. harder to read an audiobook than I thought it was going to be. Wow. Um, but yet there's an audiobook. It's on Audible and everywhere.
0: Great. And it's called it's called 138 Dates. Yes. Wonderful. Last question, what do you wish everyone knew? you know, if, if, if you could have the, you know, if the whole world had headphones on at the moment and they're all sitting there listening to, to you and I talk, um, and you could tell them something that was gonna, you know, make their life or make the world better, um, just by knowing it, what would you, what advice would you impart?
1: There's really two things. So one is focus on what you're good at and not to look at other people. So I used to always look to other people and think I should be more like them or like the attributes of them that I wish I had. And I would try and emulate them and develop skills to be more like that as opposed to focusing on what am I really good at and how can I amplify that? And that's, you'll be so much happier and you'll be so much more productive um, and contribute more in the world. If you focus on what you're good at, Um, I have started journaling, which I never thought I would do because it seems like the kind of thing that I would never be able to keep up. But um, yeah, a friend of mine is very passionate about the five minute journal and it's like you write in the morning, you write what would what three things i'm grateful for what would make today great and it's like three things and it takes me like 3 or 4 minutes to do in the morning and before i go to bed you write highlight three highlights of the day and um what i would change and i thought okay i'll try this because my friend was really you know <laughs> really said i should do it she really encouraged me to do it and so um i tried it and that has actually made a huge difference in my life it just has really clarified what I get the most joy from, things that I don't enjoy doing, and every day I'm like, "How can I make this day great?" I've got it on my mind all day, and it has made a big difference to my happiness. I have to say, so I do encourage people to try. Look up the five-minute journal. You don't have to buy the book; you can just copy what the um, the mm. idea and, and do it.
0: Wonderful. What, what what what's going to make today great? What did you write down this morning? Are you okay to share that?
1: Yeah, I wrote I wrote connect with Eve because I took her out to breakfast. Um, I wrote. Focus on writing all day and don't get this write all day and don't get distracted. And do a walk with Rod. That was my three things. Wonderful.
0: <laughs> Cause Wonderful. He's working
1: from home today too.
0: Small <laughs> things make a big difference. So
1: eh? Yeah, yeah. We're just like in the weekend, I went out with a, a it's a family that we're friends with. And I'm really I I, I really liked the mother. And I my my what made today great was like connecting with Amy was my one thing. And then I really made an effort and I was like, ah, oh, it was a great day. And I did feel like we we're really connected and I built that relationship and that's important to me. So it's like things like that are just that that process of journaling every day has made a big
0: difference. Give you a bit of clarity. Hey, one thing I just note from, you know, you seem, um, you know, very courageous, you know, and I think that after talking, I've sort of realized that, you know, um, that being courageous doesn't mean you're not scared. You know, I think that, um, you know, you're still scared to take risks along the way. And, um, you know, certainly from what you've been saying, it hasn't always been easy in in some of the things, but, um, you know, taking... You know being scared is a right, but and you know and, and deciding to go forward is is the right decision if you truly believe in it. and I think that um you know uh, that thirty seconds of courage might be a, a really good insight um, from you today. so hey look, i'm I'm incredibly grateful for your time, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a busy life and you've got kids and you've got a a book to write and um all sorts of things. so um I really, really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic to to chat with you and um and and again, I just really, really appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thanks so
0: much, Maddie. It's been lovely to chat. And there we go. Rebecca Campbell, man, how amazing is she? What a cool story. And, uh, and, and she's so humble. I think that, you know, I've done quite a lot of research on Rebecca leading up to today and even um, even today I was learning things that I couldn't find anywhere on the internet about her and, um, and uh, you know, now in hindsight it's because she's, uh, she's so incredibly humble. So, hey, thank you so much to Rebecca. I really, really appreciate her time. I also appreciate your time. Thank you so much for checking out the Road to Success podcast. As I say nearly every time, I just love having these conversations with people like Rebecca and, um, you know, the fact that people like you listen to it really... Honestly, hand and heart means the world to me. And obviously um, we've got an amazing sponsor that's come on board to the uh, the Road to Success podcast and that's Celebrity Speakers. Um, I actually do a bit of work um, for Celebrity Speakers as a speaker and certainly from a speaker's side, um, you know, they're absolutely incredible. They, they, they organise absolutely everything flawlessly and, and you just turn up and everything's done to an amazing standard and, um, you know, I can imagine if you're organising an event that it would be exactly the same experience from your side as well. So, again, if you want to check out Celebrity Speakers, just head to CelebritySpeakers.co.nz and inquire with their team. Rebecca, of course, is one of their speakers. Now, uh, if you did enjoy the podcast, or got any form of value out of it, out of today's episode, if you could do one of three things. That'd be follow the podcast firstly. Whatever platform you listen to your podcast on, just hit the follow button. The second thing you could do would be rate the podcast. Again, wherever you listen to your podcast, there's the ability to rate the podcast. So if you enjoyed it, please hit five stars. Again, it would mean the world to me. And the last thing would be simply to share the podcast. If you think that someone you know might like listening to Rebecca's story, then please just hit the share button and send it straight to them. I love getting to chat with people and more people listening means more conversations I get to have. So thank you again to Rebecca. Thank you so much to you for listening to the Road to Success podcast. Love you. See you. Bye.